All right, Josh Smith here at my studio, live from Flat 5. My guest today is one of my favorite people in the world, uh, a really good friend, and without question, my favorite guitar player on the planet. Um, certainly, certainly the person who in the last 10 years has probably had more influence on my own playing than anyone I can think of, any other musician. Um, he's a tremendous player, a tremendous person, a tremendous educator. Um, he's played with legends like Ray Brown and Joe Henderson and Freddie Hubbard and Bobby Hutcherson. I mean, he's just, he's just the greatest and uh, it's an honor to have him here. He's broadcasting live from Grump's World Headquarters right now up in Northern California. Please welcome Bruce Foreman. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for the high praise. Um, wow, I'm, I'm humbled. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm, not speech, I'm not usually speechless, but now I kind of am. <laughs> dude, I mean, without question, I can't think of anybody who's influenced my own playing in the last, certainly the last five years, but probably the last 10 years, more than you, just from our hangs, from our talks, and just honestly from being such a fan of your playing and listening to you play. And then getting to know you, it's just been a real treat for me, you know, uh, I, I'm not the kind of guy who like hangs around with a lot of people. I don't have many friends. I keep it close to the vest, and it, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and, and become friends, man. Likewise, likewise. So I've been asking everybody because I'm really curious about the path, and I know a little bit about your history, but for the people who don't, what's most interesting to me with everybody, especially generationally and everyone I'm talking to from different backgrounds, ethnically and wherever, regionally, how the guitar ended up in their hands. So like my dad, not a musician, no one in my family, really my uncle, but he was out here 3000 miles away. So it was random that a guitar got placed in my hand by my dad. Uh, I think he just wanted a musician in the family. How did it happen for you? Well, um, I, my mother's an artist. My dad really didn't care much about it one way or the other. My mother's an artist. She started me on piano. I played classical piano for about five, six, seven years and um, got a guitar. You know, we're talking like the mid late sixties mm -hmm. and um, you know, everybody was playing, you know, Bob Dylan tunes, Mr. Bojangles, that kind of stuff, some blues. And uh, I did just hanging around with everybody just, you know, and I learned the shapes and started playing it and kind of realized that there was a similarity to the piano, you know, the piano keyboard, the way it worked. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, I heard, uh, you know, that's basically it. And then I heard jazz music, heard Charlie Parker, which is funny thing is, is in both of our frames, there's a picture of Charlie Parker. Yeah. Um, and that just sort of led me down the road to, uh, you know, passionate about jazz and blues and swinging music, you know. So how old were you when you started on piano? And, and then how old were you when you got that guitar? Where did the actual guitar come from? Okay. Okay. So the, uh, the, 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 the piano, I think I started six, mm. maybe five, probably six. And then uh, at about the age of 12, maybe 13, uh, there was a friend of our family that had a guitar and he came over and we were all just hanging out and he just started showed me how to play a few chords, you know, and, and then I got one. Or maybe he even left that one with me because it was his beater guitar and he didn't really like it. And so I ended right. up, I can't really remember how that first guitar became owned uh and then i moved up the ladder and bought better equipment and you know and <laughs> heard more stuff and hung with different friends I, I mean i it's not like i completely 
gave up on popular music at the time, you got to realize, I mean, that was like 1968, 1969. Yeah. Uh, you know what was happening musically then. So it wasn't yeah. like I wasn't aware of Jimi Hendrix and The Who and, you know, and Led Zeppelin and all that great music. Um, and I, you know, and, and also the, you know, the folk gear side, you know, the, mm. the, like I say, the Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell thing, you know, I was really in Cosby Stills and I was just into the, in Woodstock, you know, I was all there sure. for that. Yeah. Um, but just when I heard jazz, it just, that's what like, and it's kind of almost funny to me that I didn't go back to the piano being that most of the music I heard had piano and not guitar. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an instrument that I probably had a lot more chops on at the time, wow, okay. but uh, I still just the guitar was it, you know, for me. And uh, uh, when you first heard jazz, were your parents jazz listeners? Did they like it or where did you hear it first? Uh, I actually heard it through a friend uh, whose father was a jazz musician. Oh, okay, I mean, That was the first, like, I remember Charlie Parker. I mean, I'd heard it through my life. My mom did like jazz and she had some records of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, and there was like a lot of music in our world that was very jazz oriented, like cartoons, uh, particularly mm -hmm. Betty Boop was like a lot of Cab Calloway. And I, and I was mm -hmm. always really into those, those old Cab Calloway movies when I was a kid wow. and, uh, and stuff like that. So in old movies. So I, I was, you could, I mean, I had that, sort of predilection for it and then uh when it finally realized what it was and heard it really for the first time that was just sort of a a pivotal moment and were, in, were you already in california then or were you yeah. still on the yes no, I, we moved from texas to california then. okay all right and so you you've got some background then you've been playing piano you learn how to read and you know and, and theory and things like that at least whatever you learn from age six till 13 yeah. when they put the guitar in your hand that, that you felt like that gave you a leg up because you were able oh, to start transferring things definitely i mean i to this day there are things i can hear and conceive and i'm i really trace it all the way back to that early days of just playing and manipulating a piano the, the, the range it has and the flexibility you have to play various sounds against other sounds mm. i'm sure that and you know and i played classical piano when i was playing piano so it was mostly pieces you know i didn't yeah. do any improvising except for when i uh would just like get in trouble and have to make shit up you know because right, right, <laughs> you right. know you're you're in the middle of a piece and you know the music falls down or uh you We've turn all the been page, there <laughs> you turn two pages and you got to do something you know or or basically you're you're playing for your parents or your relatives and they start talking oh, yeah. to you and you just sort of just make shit up as you're you know. I remember those moments like at my recitals, you know, as seven yeah. years old, reading from a book and, oh, nobody will notice that this bar was not on that page. You know? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, OK, so I'm assuming you progressed fast because you got obsessed quickly. You were hooked and you loved it. I was also I'm curious that generation, like you said, there was a giant boom of people buying guitars and playing guitars because of what was going on. Did you have a lot of friends who played people your age that you got together with? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of friends who played guitar. Not many wanted to play the way I play, wanted to play, no. but yeah, uh, in high school, we, you know, there were a lot of good guitar players there and uh, they all, you know, and I was the guy always wanting them to show me stuff and hanging out with them, playing whatever they wanted to play. I actually did a few jams at the Jefferson Airplane House that was not far from my high school. 
Um, not that they were there. They might have been in the house. I don't recall any of them actually making the jam sessions. Right. Although they must have been involved tangentially because we were in the house. But right. Um, right. But that was that time, you know, where <laughs> things were a little looser. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I was just kind of, yeah, sleeping around musically. I'd play with anybody doing anything. You know, I had the thing I was into. And then uh, I would just try and fit in with everything. You know, I kind of guess I had a jazz mentality from the get go, you know, just like, yeah, I never really bought into you got to sound. I never wanted to copy anybody particularly. You know, I had people I really loved and emulated a lot of their stuff. But, uh, you know, the I mean, the one person I could say I wanted to copy was an alto saxophone player named Charlie Parker. So yeah. there was not really much chance of doing that on the guitar which is a good thing. It made me kind of find something that was a reasonable facsimile of, you know, thereof. And during that, that, you know, formative period, like in high school, did you have music in school or, or were you involved in it in school? Yes. Um, uh, I had, I had music in school when I was young, you know, I used to play piano with uh, at various uh, assemblies and, you know, talent days and stuff. And then, uh another school i was at i was in the band and i played saxophone because they didn't have piano or guitar so mm -hmm. uh, i learned to play a saxophone so i could play in the band and then when my high school that was really the pivotal moment in san francisco because it was a school that was had kind of failed they'd had a bunch of riots and it was kind of they were phasing it out but the music program was amazing we had two really great music teachers uh and all the good music students from the other schools would come to our school to kind of do their music stuff. Okay. And we had like uh, gospel organ players and also just jazz players. We had hall guards back then, you know, cause there was problems at the school and, and all the hall guards were professional musicians <laughs> you know, that were working at night. So they would come over and we would just have jam sessions like all day in the music room, you know, See that that's amazing to me because I feel like I came in at the tail end of that even being possible. So I went to a music high school, basically a performing arts school, um, and I had music classes every day. But like that's not something my son could have now unless he went to some special school, you know. And it's just such a weird thing. I, everybody I've talked to from my age and before all played clarinet or something in school. Uh, some of them had like weekly guitar lessons at school where a private instructor would come to their high school and teach them classical guitar. If you signed up, you know, and things like that, like that just doesn't exist anymore. It's such a freaking shame. It is. It's really changed. I mean, you know, it's really true. It's just not, it's not, you know, it, yeah. I mean, and, and the bigger part of it to me is the community built around it. You know, I mean, you can always like somebody who's interested in music with YouTube. There's lots of educational tools available now. You can always, I mean, now you can take lessons with you and me. Um, yeah. But that whole community of people learning together in a pod and challenging each other and competing with each other and sharing with each other yeah. and just feeding off each other's excitement and dedication. That, that, that's a sad thing that, that's missing, I think, right now. Oh, yeah. Like like you said, you, you had a lot of friends who played guitar and maybe they didn't want to play jazz, but they were probably equally obsessed with guitar, but wanted to be Hendrix or something. And right. you had something in common that you could relate to them with and, and obsess over and talk and have fun with. And it was like, yeah, the, now that's just not a thing. 
you know right. the musician is insulated at school normally he's he's a loner not a loner but he doesn't have people that are on his same wavelength most of the time he or she so right. that's weird that's yeah. and um you know and the social i mean and of course here we are in this new world where we're all locked in our house and the yeah. state was i'm pretty sure it's a state i don't know if it's my county but like they've outlawed you can't have music now yeah you cannot have live music now Tell me, you know, I mean, first of all, jazz is the original social distance music. Nobody comes anyways. So, but, you know, I mean, you could have a waiter walk up to your table and, you know, and, and, and hand you shit. You can go to the UPS store and literally be a foot from a person. Yeah, you're wearing masks, but you're a foot from them. Yeah. And, and, and that's okay. But meanwhile, a band off in the corner of a room somewhere playing for you, that's yeah. a problem. I mean, I it's like, th it's, they're stopping us from working. It's really, if I had, if I were like Bezos or, you know, something and had a shitload of money, I would sue because that's a civil rights violation. You're telling us we can't work simply because we make music. That's bullshit. There's, there's rules about social distancing and there's rules about all yeah. that stuff, which I really agree with. And I am totally in favor of, don't get me wrong. But within those rules, if, if a musician can play music and, and work and earn a living, what's the problem here, you know? Yeah, I think they're, they're under the misguided impression that all of a sudden, if you put a gaggle of musicians together, you're going to get a horde of fans. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, they forgot about like the regular everyday musicians. You know, they think everybody is U2. And so once they allow U2, there's going to be 50,000 people in a stadium, you know? Exactly. But, you know, I mean, right now, even if it was somebody like James Taylor in his neighborhood, yeah. you know, people aren't going to go and, and in, you know, and like risk their lives to be in a crowd. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. It's just a matter of like, you're just saying, well, you're a profession, you can't do it. Yeah. You know, instead of saying, hey, there can't be more than this many people, they have to be this far apart. That's, that's really what we're talking about. And then whether a human's making music or the radio in the corner's making music, I don't see a difference, you know? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I don't, I don't see much of it. I don't know. Like I say, if I had, if I, or, you know, the musicians union should be fighting this fight. Well, they're you too know? busy coming after us for our dues, you know, when I we don't make any money. But, you know, I mean, but that's that would be a fight worth having, you know. You would think so. That's why we have them, you know. Yeah. But, uh, okay, so when do when do paying gigs become a thing? Like, what's the first paying gigs? Oh, I was lucky. I started, you know, that kind of happened to me. It wasn't like I started a business. Uh, right. I think my first one was New Year's Eve, 1973. Uh, some, you know, like everybody in town in San Francisco was probably working. Mm. So, uh, I got a call, like I was, you know, I must've taken a lesson with one guy who was a professional guy. He knew me, he knew I could play. We used to hang out and play together. And he said, just call, call Bruce, you know? And so I ended up working this, uh, this new year's gig. And then the guy liked me and he started hiring me. And then other guys on the on that gig, you know, and the guys I was doing jam sessions with started hiring me. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm going to school with, I once pulled out a hundred dollar bill at, at school for, to pay for something in the, uh, in the room, you know, the food room, the cafeteria. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I got in trouble cause I had a hundred dollar <laughs> bill that like they thought I was dealing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> 
that but dude how that feeling when you finally start like playing gigs with people older than you and they're putting money in your pocket you there's no turning back it's like this is the greatest feeling ever yeah yeah i mean it was just sort of like yeah this is cool this is a great way i mean it didn't really even dawn on me that this was something you you know i mean of course being a rock star dawned on me as a profession sure you know but uh uh being just a professional and then i would then i'd be like i said i was hanging out with these jam sessions and stuff and playing with people and then i realized these people are all professional musicians and it's a great along with the music itself the people were so amazing and the hang was so amazing it's like and wow i can just work on getting better and make a living and hang with these people that sounds like a life that's uh worth living to me <laughs> absolutely so so when you finish high school what are your parents telling you? Like, what are the, what are they pushing you towards? Because well, I'm sure you already know what you want. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it was San Francisco. You got to understand, San Francisco was such a great, great place, and in, in for jazz at that moment. Even though you know, people don't know about it because of all the other stuff that was happening in San Francisco at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, you know, let's face it, the Summer of Love and all that, you know, yeah. the rock explosion and the funk thing with Tower of Power. And, you know, I mean, it was all happening right there. Yeah. Um, but there was also a great jazz scene going on. Bobby Hutcherson lived in town. Joe Henderson lived in town. Woody Shaw had kind of moved to town. Yeah. Um, George Cables was in town. So it was like, you know, I mean, my jam sessions, I mean, and I can name a bunch of other people that no one might have heard of. The jam, the hanging and the playing and, and listening to my heroes and then playing with them, you know, this was my school already coming out of high school. Yep. And then, of course, I'm a good Jewish boy and my father, particularly, you know, college, I have to go to college. And so he knew I was really into music. So he says, well, why don't you go to a college for music? And then I kind of researched it. And there were two schools basically then that had a real jazz music type programs for that guitars could be in. One was Berkeley and the other was North Texas State. This is long before all these jazz programs in every school. Of course. And, yeah. um, and North Texas State really was attractive to my father because uh, he had stayed in Texas when my parents got divorced. So he was a resident, therefore I could get like really cheap college. Okay, yeah. So he was very, very much uh, invested in me going to that school simply because I could be a, you know, a resident state kid for that way he'd get out of having to pay for much college, Mm -hmm. you know, and he could park me there and hopefully indoctrinate me into a a real business that I would make a living at. And, um, and so I went and auditioned and talked to all the kids, you know, at the audition and the audition went well and it was, but I'm just there with all these kids who were like me and I've been hanging out with, right. With like Woody Shaw and, and, you know, I mean, and, and, and every night I'm listening to Ross on Roller Kirk or Art Blakey or Elvin Jones, you know, I mean, that's what's happening in San Francisco. Every night I'm listening to this. And cause we had a club where those guys would play six nights a week, you know, and they just come through, you know, Max Roach and Bill Evans. And, you know, it's like, it's you know george benson and uh and so um the kids were all talking about yeah when they get their degree they want to go on the road with woody herman that was like the the thing that the kids kind of that was the uh interesting carrot at the end of the stick for them and at this particular time um 
you know, we're, we're moving into this. This is like 74 or five. And uh, things are changing now for the big bands. They're not really yeah. traveling in buses and stuff anymore. Like they're, they're kind of getting, you know, there's not as many gigs for them and stuff like that. And it was challenging. And actually the funny thing was, was I had already worked with Woody Herman because Woody had come to San Francisco to play a one-off gig, like a big, you know, private party, incredibly well-funded. And so he brought out his, you know, his piano player and his lead alto player and his, his uh, tenor saxophone soloist and his lead trumpet player. And then they just hired San Francisco guys mm. for the rest. And because they had a couple of rock charts, right, um, they wanted to get a guitar player in the band. And, and my dear friend, a mentor of mine, you know, an older guy who I played with and recorded with for years, still talked to, uh, he had played with Woody. So he was the guy who got called to play drums on the gig. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he said, well, get Bruce, you know, he'll, he'll play. And I got there and it was hilarious. You know, here I am super excited to play in the Woody Herman band. And, you know, and, and like, basically my job there is to kind of rock out on a couple of, uh, a couple like shuffle blues, you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause that, that was the kind of the way they played rock. It was just sort of like, you know, pre Chuck Berry shuffle, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and it was really, but meanwhile, I'm looking at these kids and they all want to like play with Woody Herman and I had already done it, but I really, I wanted to play with like Bobby Hutcherson and Art Blakey, even though yeah. Art didn't have a guitar player, I was hoping one day, I'd be the guy that would make that band. You'd be the, the first guitar player in the Messengers, yeah. Yeah, right. And uh, and that's so I decided. Long story here, sorry. I decided not to go to college. I told my dad and mom that I'm not going to college. I'm going back to San Francisco. I'm going to get my shit together, and then I'm going to move to New York. You know, that's I'm going to spend a couple more years getting my shit together, and then I'm going to go to New York. And I'm, a, you know me. Josh, I really study this stuff. I still yes. this day, I mean, I'm always, I'm just figuring shit out. You know what I mean? I learn at a different yeah. speed than a lot of other people because I'm so dedicated and I study so hard. So mm -hmm. like, I didn't really like the idea of being in a group of people and having to study like four years, something I might be able to learn in two, you know? Right. Um, Plus, man, you, you wanted that, that on the job that you were already doing it. And it's yeah. like, once you get that taste of that, the not that there's anything wrong with the school environment, but it just it doesn't fit you anymore. Once you've been learning from like real people on yeah. the job, it just doesn't fit. That's true. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of like, I guess, a, a wild animal in the zoo. Once they get the taste of human flesh, you know, you can't ever trust them again, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, you know, and uh, so my father was very, very 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 upset <laughs> a matter of fact he disowned me oh man and um it was a temporary thing and uh and my mom was totally supportive of it she's the artist she understands she really trusted me to be able to take care of myself through the world you know she didn't really worry about me she kind of, I guess, saw in me a person that can take care of himself and figure things out and do what needs to be done. And if I had to go back to school a couple years later, I would, you know what I mean? And um, my dad eventually, you know, I came through, this is so Jewish here. Um, 
<laughs> I came through Texas, right? And I was playing at a uh, jazz festival in Galveston with Freddie Hubbard. Or was that with Richie Cole and Eddie Jefferson? I'm not oh. sure. And, uh, and my friend's, my father's best friend was like a jazz DJ on a uh, radio, had a radio, he was a jazz fan, you know, and he called my dad and he says, hey, Bobby, he says, uh, doesn't Bruce play the guitar? Yeah, he doesn't he play jazz? Yeah, he says, well, I think he's playing at the festival down in, Gal this jazz festival down in Galveston with, you know, Freddie Hubbard, whoever I was playing with. <coughs> and um, my dad, you know, he, so he showed him the, you know, by then it was like in a magazine or something, you know, there was no internet. There was like, yeah. you know, like a newspaper ad or something. He shows him this ad and, and my dad calls me after like not talking to me for what, seven years now. Jeez. He calls me and he says, so you come to Texas and you don't call me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's very, very, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a Jewish joke. It's great. It's very you know, self-mutilating uh, <laughs> Jewish humor. You know, Larry David, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I so when I was finishing high school, I had I had like you, I'd been gigging so long already that college wasn't even a thought. But it was my Jewish grandparents who were you know the ones that gave me the grief about it and. I had to like put the due diligence in to make them think I might go to college uh -huh. before, before I let them down easy. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and really, like I want to say, you know, I teach at a college now. <clears throat> if I were coming up today, <clears throat> I would go to college. If I was, if I really felt the way I did about the music, a person like me who was really got to play, particularly jazz, um, I would go, I would have gone to college if it were today because right now the 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 opportunities that I was afforded when I was coming up are just not there anymore. Yeah, so, you'll actually play more at school than you were. You were probably playing five six nights a week, and that's right. That's, and with no certain yeah. guys, that the only way you're going to get access to them now is in college because they're not working that much either. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, we had days, you know, we had guys were playing three sets a night, four sets a night, you know, and they were like, shit, you know, I mean, if you were there and wanted to play, you wanted to sit in at towards the end of the night, they're just looking for great energy, you know, somebody else yeah. to kind of step it up and bring, you know, bring some heat, you know, so yeah. there was a lot of like openness, you know, like by the third, the end of the third set, there's hardly anybody in the room anyways. Yeah. So the band's like, oh, you're, new, you're in town, you live here, let's hear you. You know, I mean, guys were really welcoming. And um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, they could tell like, okay, this kid's been here every night, he, you know, and then the club owner says, yeah, he's, you know, he's a good guitar player. You know, I was kind of like their, almost their pet kid in the club. I got to come in and hang out. And yeah, yeah, he plays good. Yeah, da, 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 da. okay. Next thing you know, I'm I'm up there and I'm getting gigs. You, you right. know. Yeah. So, uh, but but now the school is more the place for that. So I, you know, I mean, I just want to say that he, he, it's all about the environment, the timing of things. You know, things change. Like right now, I mean, no one's even at school. We're all stuck in our room. And yeah, what are we, how are we going to make that work for ourselves? It's, it's like, I mean, I liken it to like, 
we get a tune and it's got a new set of changes we've never seen before. Yeah. So we got to figure out how to play it. Yeah. And that's kind of where we are. Yeah. And it's, it's weird. Yeah. I'm sure you're teaching students like we are right now via zoom or something like that, or at least having conversations with them, but it's almost like, you know, you, a lot of people pay for a gym or a trainer because they need the motivation of being around other people or someone to kick them in the ass. Same reason you go to college, kind of, you know, yeah. is to, to have get kicked in the ass and have peers around you and all that. And now it's back to, well, the onus really is, uh, the onus is always on you, but it's really on you again right now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was working with, uh, with Terrence Blanchard at this one music thing for the Monterey jazz festival. And, and the kids, there were some kids in there and they were asking questions and uh, talking about practicing. And he says, you know, he says, well, I was studying with this, this great trumpet teacher in New Orleans and, you know, and Wynton Marcellus was studying with him. You know, they were both kind of, you know, working it out. They were similar mm-hmm. age. And he, he says, I asked, because the kid had asked about practicing and he says, you know, I asked my teacher, I said, do I need to practice every day? And the teacher said to me, he says, no, he says, but Wynton does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, again, you know, you're right. The motivation thing. And also, I mean, you know, from teaching and I do a lot of times the roadblocks people, I mean, people call us because they want to get better. And they think we, we can help them on their path. You know, sure. that's basically it. Um, and a lot of times what really is going to help them is not necessarily the guitar, but the way we think about it or to be motivated to do positive things or to take responsibility. There's a lot of uh, stuff you'd probably put more in the, in the, uh, psychotherapist or shrink world yeah. than guitar teacher world where you just got to get inside a guy's head and, and figure out what or girl's head and figure out what's holding them back what's stopping them from doing the work what's stopping them from understanding why they're unhappy with what's happening and why they how to make it right and yeah. you know and I'm, i think that's one of my strengths as a teacher is is kind of not feeling like I have to give you 10 pounds of licks with every lesson. Right. No, I'm going to do what's right and helps you achieve your goals and figure out what's getting in the way of that. You are fantastic at that. (laughs) (laughs) So when do you, when do you start writing tunes and thinking about your own music? Huh? Well, you know, I think that's different with everybody. You know, there's a lot of guys who never even do that, but, uh, I, for me, I just, I just, a lot of times the the inspiration would come to me, you know, like I just like, maybe I'd play a little chord progression that I never heard before. And it just like, or maybe a melody would fall out that I just really loved. And I just sort of build it together. Maybe I was inspired by something that happened in my life. And there were a few ideas that were just sort of rattling around my brain. And they finally coalesced around that concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a period where I force myself there's um you've seen orchestral sketch paper right it's like like a double it's like 18 staves and it's it's like double sized yeah Uh, i for a long period 
made a deal with myself that I would fill up a page a day. The, I mean, there was no, I mean, it could be, I could reharmonize songs, I could write new songs, I could do uh, tone rows, whatever it was, but I would sit down and write a full page every day, even if I had to write a laundry list or a shopping list. And, um, and uh, in that time, I wrote a lot of great tunes, you know, so there is a, there is a thing, if you sit down to write and you really kind of get yourself into the momentum and into the you know flow of it uh you're definitely going to be a lot more pro pro productive than than just waiting around for inspiration to hit although it still will hit you know i mean yeah, yeah. there's a That's song something i struggle with I, think I played uh i just played something like that which sounds kind of like sermonette or you know the preacher a little bit or silver and um and I built a whole song around that just cause that one thing just sort of fell out and I just, it, I followed the idea through. So, yeah. um, and, uh, and, you know, I come from the bebop school. So like writing contrafacts, they're called, you know, melody, new melodies over standards. Right. Uh, a lot of times I did that just as a teaching tool to show a student what I would play for a chorus over this song. Yeah. And then it was such a cool chorus. I said, well, man, I'll make the bass player or a horn player play it along with me and we'll have a song, you know, yeah. Yeah. instead of the actual melody of the standard. That kind of so it really is like a balance between discipline and inspiration for you writing. Most definitely. I'm, you know, I have friends who have a whole different way of doing it. And uh, of course they, they have, you know, reasons for the deadlines and stuff, but I, I, yeah, for me, it's, yeah, I'm just playing. And if inspiration hits, I'm ready to go at any moment. You know? But you, but you have moments of discipline writing too, which is cool. Sure, sure. I have had. And of course, uh, a lot of that seems to be more channeled into arranging these days. Cause that's what I get okay. called to do more. Yeah. You know, somebody will have a song and if they just need help with, you know, obviously my harmonic sense is a little different than a lot of people. So it'll mm -hmm. make the song kind of sound different yeah. right right all right so so then you're touring you, you you solo records start to come out and you toured with you know some legends of of music and all that when does teaching you know as a profession start to really even become something you're interested in well you know i was always giving lessons i mean right. way back to like almost high school days you know like i work in music stores teaching lessons and it was really kind of twofold. One, I really, well, it's three actually. One, I really like talking about the music and helping people. I really do. Second of all, um, it's a selfish thing. If, if you want to really learn something, you got to teach it. <laughs> you know what I mean? By teaching it, you learn new, new facets of it and new ways to, to think about it that really help your own playing. And third of all, I mean, I like the money, you know, so um, and I, I feel like I'm an empathetic creature who can hear where a person needs to go and can help them. And so I, I was good at that. And, and, and I just and then it's funny as the as the equilibrium in jazz changed, like, when I started, probably 85% of the money in economy of jazz was performing and about 15% was education. Well, yeah. now you can easily say that uh, that has completely flipped. Yeah. 
And, and I just guess like my timing was good. I was there teaching all along. I started an, a mentoring program for kids. I have real, I mean, being a person who learned how to play, I feel like there are ways to really help people learn. And I think by playing with better players, that's the most important thing. And so I've always been really about, you know, getting everybody playing with people who are better than them. That to me is like the, the generational mentoring apprenticeship aspect of music that is yeah. so important. So I, um, I, I have uh, just, that has been my philosophy in teaching and, uh, and it's been successful. And so now as the economy changed around me, I was just lucky that I was in a good spot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, now you, you know, it's been a thing that's, uh, I, you know, it doesn't carry you, but it, it's, it, you know, it's a huge part of your life. And it, I think you find it rewarding. Absolutely. Oh, of course, man. You know, and, and it's, again, it's on all those three levels. One, I really love helping people. I feel it's my responsibility. I was mentored by a lot of great players. Yeah. So I have that responsibility to pass it on. It's rewarding to do it. Uh, it's a challenge to do it. So I like all that, but then also it provides benefits for my playing because these guys keep me on my toes and yeah. I need to really get clear about what my thoughts are about things and mm -hmm. uh, put to words sometimes things I can only hear. And when, and just by kind of clarifying what that thought is, that sound is in, in actual words, you, 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 you have a better understanding of it. You know, so there's a lot of that that's still to this day. And I, and I really think, you know, being older, there's, you know, your, your physical skills do diminish as you get older. And um, being around all these young bucks, you know, it forces you to stay in shape, you know. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Great, which is a gift. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, even though I teach nowhere near as much as you do, <laughs> and I lament it up until the time that I actually do it, I complain that I'm going to do it. And yeah. once I get into it, I do enjoy it. And you're right. The part I enjoy the most is helping somebody break down a wall, number one, and feeling like you actually helped. But then number two, what it brings to my playing, like it, it just brings clarity to, to yeah. thoughts. And then that opens new doors for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's jump into the 10 questions. Oh, this is, this sounds uh, it sounds like a it's two and a half Passovers, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, your math is accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number number one, where's the Afi Coleman? Do you have the? I'm oh, sorry. Really number bad. one, <laughs> when you started learning and playing. What was the first thing that when you figured it out on guitar and you got it under your hands, you were so proud that it was like, it set that hook. There's no going back. You couldn't believe you figured this out. It's so cool. Wow. Man, I remember playing once just over some blues, right? And mm -hmm. using pretty much the pentatonic, uh, of my version of the pentatonic scale, what I call the bruise scale. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I remember it just like, it was swinging. I, I, I finally felt like I was playing with the guys, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I was playing with good guys and even they were going, yeah. You know, like I remember hearing two guys in the behind the rhythm section going, yeah. You know, and I was just laying into like some swinging shit and I thought, oh man, I found this like 
magic highway or something, you know, this yeah. beam of light that if I just hold on to it, it'll energize me for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's, that's, that feeling is the greatest. How old do you think you were when that, that happened? I was probably about 14. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing feeling. And you're right. The val when you're a kid like that and you play with, with people better than you yeah. and you get even just the littlest bit of validation, it's yeah. like, Oh man, I I've arrived. I can't, you know, I did it. Yeah. It's, it's a mean, great it's feeling. Like a spark, you know, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, you know, I hate to use a wildfire, you know, I mean, uh, metaphor, but, or analogy, yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, it just lights something inside of you that, you know, you just like, it, it, it's, it's just out of control. It's just oh, yeah. you, have to, you have to feel that more and more and want it all the time. And that's yeah, what it yeah. is. You, you become addicted to that feeling. The first time I transitioned from, you know, all the practice to like being on a stage with adults and I finished a solo and like, they all kind of gave me the thumbs up, but then people also clapped. Now, part of it was because I was this tall, but right. still it was like, that's it. I'll never do anything else for the rest of my life. Like that was it. Yeah. No, cool. Amazing. What's the first solo you ever learned note for note? Is Did you even do that? I don't do, I, I, I mean, I know a bunch of them because I can sing them. Therefore, yeah, they got, you got them in here, but. But I didn't, you know, I was never really transcribed full things. I was more like um, transcribed pieces, but I did. Uh -huh. Charlie Parker's Now's the Time. Yeah. You know, the... That one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one just tore my head off. I mean, that that not only was some... I mean, that, that sucker pulled me into jazz, you know. Yeah. So is that... that in your opinion, that's the one that, that really pulled you in, that song? Yeah, that solo, yeah. That's... Yeah. I, I So when I was a kid... Two of the guys I played with in in my first band, they were, you know, in their 40s. And the guy played keyboards and guitar and sang. And he was kind of a jazzer. but And the bass player, was he was a rocker. But their parents were jazzers. They uh -huh. both played bass and guitar, just like their sons. And they played, like, with Ira Sullivan and stuff in South Florida, who just passed away, actually, a South Florida jazz legend. Oh, man, Ira, I got to play with him. Yeah. number of times man what a what an amazing talent what a great and under i mean all, all those musicians know about him but i don't think a lot of the jazz fans really do you know so i yes you need to look him up i used yeah. to see him play with joe diorio at the airport which is <laughs> incredible but anyways so these these guys they tell me you should come with us one of these nights to go see our parents play you know they're in their 70s or something yeah. so i went with them and they're playing just trio, guitar, drums, and I don't, uh, I don't remember who the drummer was, but the, the, the guitarist and the bassist were, were the, their parents. And the first song they played was Now's the Time. And yeah. it was immediately hit me like, that's a blues. I could play that song with them, you know? Yeah. And it made a big, I was probably 13 years old, and it was like, oh, I, that was cool. So I asked, what's that song, you know? And they told me. And my dad had it on a record because he had Charlie Parker records and stuff, so I found it, and then I listened to it. Yeah. crazy wow that solo it's that first chorus alone just has it's, everything you need to know about bird you know yep yeah it's unbelievable what's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar do your hands just go somewhere 
like without so, thinking, like autopilot. Lately, lately, it's been sort of an E majory kind of thing. Okay. I think, I think a lot of it's because this guitar is so um, acoustic. You know, I've gotten more away from the like the real electric arch tops and the more acoustic ones. Yeah. That it's just you know it's just listen to that you know yeah. it's like it's beautiful you know stuff like that. Yeah. That was mostly my thing too for for twenty five years until I started to play the same thing so often that other musicians would parrot it back to me. They'd hear me flip standby on my amp and know it was coming out and they'd play. Oh, they, oh they, no, God, yeah, that gets embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I had to change it up. Now I'm in G most of the time when I pick up a guitar. Well, you know for, I mean, yeah, and I don't really play anything specific. It's just I usually find myself in the key of E yeah. just kind of what that's to wake up the guitar and to kind of wake me up a little bit. Yeah. All right. So that may relate to this question. And it may be the same for you as it is for me, but do you have some sort of running musical narrative that is just in there all the time? So for me, I'm hearing that Charlie Parker solo, even if it's stuff I can't play, I hear it literally 24 hours a day. When I'm cooking eggs, I'm hearing, like it never goes away. Is it the same for you? Yes, most okay. definitely. There's a soundtrack to everything all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that's, uh, back to my original, we said this earlier, you know, he, they, there's, they have a word for people that are like hearing voices all the time. <laughs> yeah. I tell my wife, I, I get in bed and put my head down on the pillow. And it's like, I have to wrap that solo up before I can fall asleep. It has to resolve. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I'll just like even put on, you know, a radio and an earbud just, you know, with people talking or something just to kind of try to, I never get rid of it, but I can like quiet it enough so that I can sleep, you know? <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. All right. Number five, when did you feel like during the midst of your growth period and gigging and all that, that you started to find what maybe was your voice on the instrument? Was there a moment when like something clicked and you felt I should go further this way? This kind of sounds like me. Either, yes, there, when was that moment? There, there were numerous. I think that that's, you know, I mean, maybe that even hurt, but you know, I, I mean, I've had directions. I, I, you know, I go in directions. I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm going down a highway, but there's, you know, it's not a straight road. It's like, mm -hmm. there's, you know, little bends and turns that go through new areas. And so um, I've had numerous ones of those. I, I really, and, and, you know, it's so funny, you know, there's this thing about being yourself, you know, I mean, uh, it's particularly when you're young, in your 20s, you know, and in your teens, and you're saying, I got to be me, I got to be me, there's this whole thing. But meanwhile, you're mostly just copying the people you like, right? you know, and, and the beautiful thing for me is, I really kind of was modeling myself mostly after people who didn't play the guitar. Mm. I mean, and most of my professional functions were not as a guitar player. In other words, um, yes, of course, Wes and George Benson and Barney mm -hmm. Kessel and Joe Pass, like, are my, you know, and Kenny Burrell are my, like, guiding lights for the instrument. But, yeah. but you know, not as much as Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Wynton Kelly, Art mm -hmm. Tatum, you know yeah. what I mean? And so... Uh, and most of my gigging was, it was funny enough, I'd either be kind of in a band to be a secondary horn player, 
or I'd be in a band because there was no piano player. So I had to be the piano player. So in a lot of ways, that stylistic development came just out of professional experience. And yeah, sheer necessity. Provide, yeah, and to be something. But, um, but, it's, but back to my thing, like in our 20s, we think I gotta be me, I gotta be me, but you're really spending most of your time copying what you dig. <laughs> and then um, you arrive in your late thirties or forties and you look around and you go, Oh shit, I'm me. You know I mean? It's yeah. like, you just are yourself. I mean, this, and you almost realize that all this worrying about being yourself was just kind of a waste of time. It was going to happen anyways. And you're, you're a, you're a combination of your background, your perspective, your, um, your, your aesthetic, what you like, your your resources and your skill set. I mean, that's yeah. how you. That it's like your hand. That's what you yeah. become, and yeah. you really can't avoid it. You know, you can try your best to be a clone of John Schofield or of John Coltrane or something like that, but yeah. you're not going to be. You're still right. going to be you. That's amazing. One thing you said there about jazz, even the guitar players you list you listed, like the the your heroes, our heroes, you know. Wes and George and Barney Kessel, even Charlie Christian. And the, these guys, even the shit they were listening to were not guitar player based. You know, the first, even Charlie Christian, the first improvisers he was listening to were horn players. So it's like, I think that's completely unique to jazz. Like you said, that most of your heroes, even though you had these guitar players, it's all based off some other instrument a lot of the times. Whereas the world I kind of started from, the blues world, every hero I had was a guitar player. You know, and and then he basically invented that language, his sound. You know, and so it was a different. That is a different kind of thing that jazz is unique, I think, in that way. Right, and, and, players, and, and, you know, and as you know, it, probably with a lot of influences on the same instrument, it is more challenging. Well, it's more difficult to hear your personality emerge. It's it still does, but yeah. it's not like it's not super obvious like it would be in a jazz context. I think. Absolutely, I think that was maybe why, like you said, I did become obsessed with like, oh, I got to find my voice because I knew for certain I sounded too much like this guy for a while and too much like this guy and then too way too much like this guy for years, you know, uh, and it was, it was very obvious to me. So it, it pushed me the opposite way, you know? Cool. Yeah. All right. Number six, what do you consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? Do you even think about anything like that? Do you have one? Yes, I, that's a question I ask myself almost daily and that's what I work on. You know, obviously, um, for me, it would be like my ability to, to, to play rock and roll with pedals and effects, you know? No, because I really don't know how any of that shit works. I can make, I can, I can get in the, you know, you could give me your rig and I could play and I would come up with something that would work and it would be like, yeah. unlike anything you'd ever heard before, but sure. I really wouldn't know. That's not something I, I have the ability to do because I just don't want to buy a bunch of gear and spend the time doing that. But that's like a real weakness. Weaknesses within my playing in the context of what it is, um, is like, uh, I feel like um, just, you know, developing more counterpoint, you know, more, you know, even though I do a lot of it, it's it's like it's not as strong as I want it to be. Interesting. Um, uh, I'm. I, I like swinging so much that I think I have a weakness for not playing lush things. Huh. Interesting. You know, I mean, like, 
like really lush chord voices and just letting them sit there. And that's something I work on a lot because I do see it as like when I listen back to my playing, I go, wow, there's just like a bunch of shit going on all the time. There's never really this like lush pastoral landscape harmonically, okay. you know, everything's always moving. So let me ask you this then, because this is a tangent, but it interests me. When you talk about like, you know, not playing with pedals or a guitar, or, you know, solid body guitars, rock things. At what point is a weakness not really a weakness and just a personal choice? Like when when is contentment acceptable? It's like, well, I know if I wanted to play like Ingve Malmsteen, I would have learned to do it by now. So I'm okay with it. You know what I mean? It's I guess you could consider that a weakness, but it's also I'm content in my choice. Where do you right, fall right. on that? That happened to me a long time ago. I mean, back, you know, probably maybe before you were born even. Um, I was uh, tickled by the fusion world and the, sure. and the funky guitar-y world of uh, uh, Robin Ford and Larry Carlton. You know what I mean? I was pretty much a bebopper then, but I got myself a 335 and that was the hot music. And I sure loved the way Robin sounded, you know, and, and I mean, I knew all those guys because they were Northern California guys too. So sure. Russ Ferranti and I played gigs together a lot. You know, this was back when he was with Robin's band, you know, before the Yellow Jackets were formed. And, right. um, and uh, I thought, wow, this is the future. This is a direction, new direction in the music. I'm going to go down this road, you know, and I got got myself a, a 335, you know, and was playing with a lot of guys in L.A., was going to move to LA at the same time I was working with Richie Cole and Eddie Jefferson on the road. So I was playing my bebop Jones was being, uh, satiated, you know, so I was kind of checking out a new direction and, um, I, you know, I was playing fusion with a lot of good bands in LA and, um, and uh, we were on the road and uh, I came home early because and the band and Eddie and Richie went up to Detroit after Chicago. I came back to L.A., I think, to do a gig. And um, Eddie got murdered out in front of a club. And um, that had a big effect on me because uh, I looked around and I realized I really didn't love the music I was playing. I loved when I was playing bebop with Richie and Eddie and when I played with Bobby and Freddie and all that stuff, but that playing loud fusion with the song, the changes kind of just sat by themselves. They didn't really kind of, they weren't mm -hmm. progressions in the sense of cadences that I kind of my ear liked. Uh -huh. um, the, 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 uh, the loud long solos, you know, it just like all felt kind of aimless to me and unrewarding. And I realized the reason I was doing this was because it was popular and maybe going to make me more money potentially. Although I also was very well aware that probably the people who loved it more than me were going to do better just because of that's generally the way things work in life. And, yeah. um, and I really loved playing straight ahead. And so I put that 335 away and never really played it again. And, um, sold it and uh, moved on and, you know, with the L5 and rode that to, to here. So you're right. I mean, I can see that stylistically I have certain styles I'm good at and certain ones I'm just, you know, completely unaware of. They are weaknesses, I think, you know, just because to be more well-rounded would probably give me more 
things to say, but you're right. I mean, I have to go with, there's only so much time in the day and I have to be honest ultimately. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Very much so. All right. Number seven, who's a huge influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear? Uh, surprised to hear. Uh, I don't know if they'd be that surprised, but Albert King. <laughs> See, I, I'm I'm not surprised, but yeah. I do I don't know how much you listen to him though. That's interesting oh, to me. I've, I've listened to him quite a bit, uh, but the things that that get me about him are not really like the things that most people get out of him you know what mm -hmm. i mean but you'd be surprised how much it's influenced me and how much just the way he you know first of all he can make anything work he's one of those guys that his guitar can be so phenomenally out of tune <laughs> yeah. that like he doesn't even you know i mean it, you could like you could just like fuck around and play with all the tuning gears and that motherfucker could get up and make it work yep yep and, and, you know, there's a commitment to an integrity to his music that's so deep and his just pure way to get himself through this wood and through this metal out to the world. That is so inspiring and so such a big influence. You know? uh, well, you know, I'm with you on this one. Uh, there's a reason Albert King is the maybe the only person I've ever listened to almost every day of my entire life. Even if it's just one song, yeah, there comes a point every day when I listen because, yeah, don't get me wrong, there's a million people that have influenced me and that I love, but nothing makes me just take a breath, gives me goosebumps, and, and just auditorially even just go, oh, whoa, like listening to Albert King. Nothing has ever done it. Nothing. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, he, he's among many. You asked for the one that most people would probably never figure. Yeah, interesting. You know, in a way, I, I mean, I put him in the same places like John Coltrane and Charlie Parker in that way, and that these people transcend the instrument and the music, and they there's a part of them that comes through and just grabs you when you hear it. Yep, I'm with you 100%. All right, number eight. Would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp, this is in a gig situation, or vice versa, a great amp and a shitty guitar? Great guitar, probably. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm opposite of you. I need I need the amp. I'll have uh, a better show with whatever guitar and a good tone versus the other way around. Well, I mean, I guess you know, to me, without with a shitty guitar, there's no you're not the amp's not even going to have a chance. You know, I mean, I guess what we're talking about is something a little different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the amp is far less important in usually in my gigs because of the volume level I play at. Right. Right. You know what I mean? And there's workarounds. Uh, if a guitar is, is unplayable or won't stay in tune or, you know, that the, 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 particularly like the, um, the input jack is always crapping out. Yeah. That to me, it's like, I mean, and that's happened a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> particularly hollow body guitars there's the thing about input jacks they really because of where they're mounted you know in the curve of the guitar it's it's a sort it's a it's a, a design weakness you know? yeah yeah interesting all right so you'd you'd go for the guitar i it's would been split. You know, 
mean, I, I play mostly acoustic style music. So, you know, the amp is not, I mean, I've got a lot of great amps and believe me, there are some guitars that can sound good almost with any amp. And there are some guitars that you can only have a good amp and they'll work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been split about 50, 50 on the answers. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we've already established that you work your ass off and you're, you're more dedicated than most. You're always pushing towards new things. What keeps that going for you after this many years playing? Do you just love it that much or is there something else? Do you feel like obligated to do it? Uh, I do to some degree, like this guitar has given me everything in my life and I feel like I'm letting it down if I don't give back and play it every day. But I'm, I'm wondering what keeps you pushing? Well, you know, again, that's, that you're, you're, you know, there's various stages of life, you know, that, that, that you, you, you know, and not, you know, hope this doesn't sound condescending, but when you're at certain levels, at certain ages, certain things, you ask certain questions of yourself, mm. you know, when you get to my age and uh, I mean, like if I didn't love it and really have to do it, I could just walk away from it. I, there's no, there's no reason why I do it every day as hard as I do. My wife's out camping right now. I could be out camping, but right. you know, I would rather be here working on my music, still teaching my students, you know, like finding the next sound. I just have to do it. And I love doing it more. I'll, that's, that's the weirdest thing about this is that I've been doing this now for what, 50 years. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I love it more now than I ever did. Really playing. It's not music. weird to me that I, I understand it. And, and you know, the, the real, the real irony, I guess, and the, it's, it's kind of a sad irony <laughs> is that I can't be out there doing it for people because uh while i don't need people i mean i can just make music and and feel completely fulfilled there is a missing connection there oh huge one uh, that at least thankful for the internet where i get to have some of that yeah it's been that's the the conversation i've had with my non-musician friends during this pandemic when they asked me well what's different and i and they go, well, I, we see you, you know, you're playing every day and you're working. We saw you went to Nashville, you were producing this, you're, you're doing, you know, you're working. And I'm like, well, yeah, but the thing that I identify as the most, which I know is the same for you as an improviser has been stripped away. And it doesn't mean we're not sitting, you're improvising all day long, sitting here on, you know, in your room and when you do your show and when you do everything, but it's in a vacuum. You're used to having feedback from every other musician, feedback from the audience, and, and that changes what you play. And it's a it's a living, breathing thing, and that's just been taken away. Yeah, yeah. And they can't yeah. no non musicians can't relate to that, you know. So they don't understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, number ten. Then, do you have a five year plan, Bruce? Is there something that's just grating on you that you have to get it done? Well, you don't know, but I, I really feel, um, I, yeah, I really feel that I've come up, come up with something new, you know, uh, or at least defined who I am, you know, because I've been a, I've been a person that's had a lot of things going on my whole life, you know. Yeah. I mean, a, of course, the jazz guitar player. I have a trio. I'm, I'm duo. Neither have my red guitar show. I have my band Cowbop. Um, you know, teach all that, you know, there's just like this whole big bunch of shit that I do. And I wanted it all to be one thing. 
I didn't want six things, six projects to push up a hill anymore. You know, like that's, that was kind of like, I guess my goal for the five year plan, you know, was to like find some, draw a circle around everything I do to have one thing. Mm-hmm. And the, and my decision a while back was the red guitar. Yeah. It, 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 it had, you know, elements of my cowboy band and my cowboy sensibility. It had my trios arrangements in it. It had storytelling. I write novels and I like telling stories. It had teaching in it. And, and you know what I mean? And, and I was playing and improvising um, and entertaining people, which is something and your, I like. And your sense do. of humor. <laughs> right. It had all of those things. And so that is really kind of what I wanted, which that begat Grumps, the character Grumps, yeah. uh, which just happened because of a rant on Facebook. I yeah, mean, I, I didn't, you know, I just got up one day and I was just sick of watching everybody practice on, on Facebook. And I, yeah. you know, I, and I got up like a geezer and I said, you know, damn, man, you know, it's like, uh, I, I, when I was coming up, people played in public and practiced in private. Yeah. You know, I said, so everybody remember that when you, when you go on Facebook, you know, and it started kind of a shit storm and I kind of got known as grumps from that. And then I started making these comedy videos and, and then of course the TV show happened out of that. Yeah. And it's sort of like, if I had to explain it to people who didn't even know who I was, it's like, imagine really uh, a, a guitar player, a decent jazz guitar player who, um, who was kind of like Mark Twain or Will Rogers, you know, like a social commentarian, you know, smarter than he seems, kind of down folksy and, and uh, self-deprecating Western style, you know what I mean? That kind of a thing. And, uh, and you know, I mean, and so I realized that this Grumps character that, I, I mean, it's sort of like the culmination of the five-year plan, except for now what to do with it right. is... Um, I really feel like I've got it. And, you know, like Grumps, the basic thing about Grumps is, is um, we're in a world right now full of assholes. <laughs> who, no, really, who think they're nice people. I wish that didn't make me laugh, but it's so, yeah. No, I wish it wasn't true. We're in a world of assholes that think they're nice people or think they're justified in being assholes, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Grumps is actually a nice person that thinks he's an asshole. So, so, you know, having that, that character to kind of riff on and do all my shit. And with that, I kind of, like I say, I go down this kind of, you know, um, this kind of uh, Mark Twainsian, Will Rogers kind of, you know, thing. But I'm also, I can play the guitar, you know what I mean? I mean, really to, you know, and in a way that most people almost don't even know you can play it that way. I mean, the world's kind of clueless about this style of playing and even what a guitar like this, what, is this even a guitar? You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And um, and so it's giving me an opportunity to kind of introduce something like, well, God, this guy can play, but why does he, why, why didn't he play like a regular guitar player, you know? <laughs> and um, And also I have the freaky ability to be able to talk at any level while I'm playing anything. So like, to me, this is like the end of the five-year plan. I've got this, finally, I've got my circle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now the five-year plan is, is to what to do with it. I'd love, ultimately, I think my Grumps TV show, I'd like it on Netflix. 
and I'd like to be able to get past the pandemic so I could have real guests on the show. Yeah. And, uh, and get some real writers with me to help me and, you know, kind of, but still keep the folksy home, you know, the lame kind of like Fernwood tonight vibe of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, th I think it's a good plan, man. I think it's yeah. a good plan. It's what I want to do. I want to entertain people. I mean, I'm going to keep playing and practicing. There's no stopping that. You know, yeah. but, but the fact is, like you say, you saw that video I put up from Grunt's TV where I'm just playing. And then mm -hmm. my wife comes in and she's shaking a martini. And next thing you know, she's shaking it in time with me. And I'm playing mm -hmm. along with the, you know, cocktail shaker. I mean, that mm -hmm. kind of shit, that's okay with me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's entertaining stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we reached the end of the 10 questions. So everybody... Uh there will be links to all things Bruce Foreman in the description of this video. You need to go buy his records. You need to buy his classes. You need to take a lesson because uh, you'll learn a lot. But mostly, listen to his music, man. Um, Bruce, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And for members, if you're not a member yet, hit join. And if you are, you're going to get our little extra video, the Turn 2 video, which we'll do in a second. But, Bruce, what a pleasure, man. Can I say something real quick? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you, Josh. I just want to point out uh, what a great member of the community are. Community you are. You're a great friend. Um, I got to say that uh, I have a lot of. Basically, I was stuck at about 1,200, 1,500 Instagram fans, and when you like did your blues challenge and then let everybody know you knew me. Uh, that has incrementally changed my community to more people. And I'm ever grateful for that. Your, just your gracious and graciousness and generosity, just like your generosity of spirit to do a show like this and to enable all of us to um, meet your community and to build a bigger community together. So I want to really just let you know how appreciative and uh, respectful I am of that. Well, thank you, Bruce. That means the world to me coming from you. And I, I mean, every word I say, like everybody needs to hear you play music because, you know, it's something special that doesn't even need to. You just need to hear Bruce play music. So go do your due diligence and buy some music and support a real artist. Thank but you. And I, I look yeah. forward to meeting all these people somewhere down yeah. the road, either through the lesson or. You know, like I say, all those Grumps TV episodes are on my YouTube channel, you know, so people well, can I'll share that when I put stuff up, whatever. I will share it all in the description. Oh, thank you. So. Thank you. All right, members, we'll be right back.